Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines Podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University. I am host of the Guidelines Podcast. Our topic tonight is Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review, and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Patients with Chiari Malformation. And we're reviewing, uh, there's two separate chapters. One is on symptoms and one is on diagnosis. Our guests tonight are the first authors of each of those uh, papers. Uh, we have Dr. David Bauer and Dr. Eric Jackson. Should be a very interesting podcast tonight. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Bauer. Yeah, hi there. Sorry, I'm uh, David Bauer. I'm a, uh, a faculty at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, Texas Children's Hospital. And I'll uh, go through chapter one of our uh, guidelines. The, the guidelines were um, really to, to better understand the um, literature uh, surrounding Chiari uh, malformation. And so um, we started out uh, thinking about the, the preoperative workup. And so we uh, searched uh, the literature, found uh, around 560 abstracts, 151 uh, were uh, selected for full text review. And uh, we ended up with 42 articles that were included in the review. We uh, were pretty thoughtful about uh, our questions. And um, unfortunately, uh, the uh, uh, recommendations we could make um, were not strong. And that's because we didn't find a um, strong level of evidence to answer the, the important questions um, so that's important to really take uh, guidelines with a grain of salt um, when you think about the uh, the quality of the evidence. And uh, so I'll, I'll go into the uh, recommendations and then uh, maybe dive a little bit deeper into how we got there and what this might mean. So uh, for um, uh, the uh, uh, patient with Chiari malformation who was just diagnosed with a, a brain MRI or maybe a, a spine MRI. I wondered if should we uh, recommend a complete uh, evaluation of the entire neuraxis, so uh, brain and complete spine. Um, and and this uh, might uh, find something like a brain tumor um, or a, a syrinx that you, you wouldn't diagnose um, just with the brain or just with the C spine MRI. And so. Our, uh, we did recommend that, that um, it, it could be helpful, um, but again, we, we didn't find great evidence to uh, to support this. Um, a second thought was, uh, does the CINE MRI, um, is that a helpful modality to um, evaluate whether a patient would benefit from a decompression? And the uh, um, literature really um, doesn't provide strong evidence that CINE MRI um, is helpful. And, and so um, our recommendation is it may or may not be helpful. For um, uh, dynamic imaging, so in, in uh, uh, the recent years, uh, 
there has been some focus on um, markers of craniocervical instability, such as um, the clival axial angle, a PBC2. What about um, dynamic imaging? And so we evaluated the literature and found um, some benefit in, in some uh, articles, uh, really a case series that looking at the clival axial angle, PBC2, or the CC2SVA might be uh, might be helpful to predict patients that might have instability. However, um, again, the, the literature wasn't strong, and so we had a, a, a grade C recommendation. So what, is it, what does this really mean? So um, it means, um, number one, that we, we mostly have case series. We don't have uh, randomized controlled trials um, um, about the um, diagnostic workup for Chiari malformation. Um, but I do think our um, chapter does um, provide a framework for how one might think about the workup if you were a um, practice pediatric, uh, pediatric neurosurgeon in, in 2023. And so I think from that standpoint, um, reading the uh, uh, guideline and uh, sort of using that as a, a jumping off point um, could be um, could be helpful um, for your own thought process. Great. Well, I appreciate that rundown of the of the first article, uh, Dr. Jackson. You want to take it away for number two? Sure. Um, so I'm Eric Jackson. I'm neurosurgery faculty at Johns Hopkins, and I'm going to be talking about the the second chapter. Um, and as had been mentioned, uh, it talks about symptoms, but I I kind of view the chapter as more really looking at practical questions for both physicians and patients. Um, the first question uh, you know, of this, and I guess going back, um, as Dr. Bauer had mentioned there, is this chapter had about 430 abstracts, which ultimately led to about 35 papers in, in the review. There were a total of four um, grade C recommendations based on class three evidence, and one question actually had insufficient evidence to make a recommendation. So again, highlighting... Um, what Dr. Bauer said, that there is a, a, a void of, of great literature and something I think that's helpful, will be helpful moving forward for caring for these patients. Um, in terms of the questions themselves, the, the first question was, in patients operated for symptomatic Chiari, what symptoms are most likely to improve after surgery? And I think this is an important question for clinicians as we have patients come in with lists of symptoms and what they have and what they don't, and should we be treating them for that? And I think based on these extensive lists, obviously the literature um, is primarily case series, and it really is all over the place in terms of um, what symptoms um, people will be described as having and what gets better. And overall, though, the strain-induced headache was something that was fairly uh, consistent throughout um, pretty much all of the papers, whereas other symptoms were much more variable. So I think overall, the group thought that the, based on the literature, the strain-induced headaches are, are things that we can reliably say have a very high likelihood of being related to Chiari and therefore responding to intervention with Chiari, whereas other symptoms may respond, but also have a high likelihood of, of not responding. Um, some of the other questions, again, get at, you know, who to treat and why. And our, our second question was, if you have an asymptomatic Chiari, should you perform a prophylactic surgery to prevent um, uh, a need for, um, a future need for surgery? And then what's the chance of developing symptoms if you don't? Um, and overall, reviewing the, the literature, 
the Chiari appears to have a fairly benign natural history. And what we mean by that is if a patient comes to you and is not symptomatic from their Chiari, the likelihood of developing a symptomatic Chiari in the future is fairly low. Um, and so there is not good literature to recommend prophylactic surgery. That being said, there are some patients who um, can become symptomatic. So it is important to um, discuss with them potential symptoms or reasons to come back for further evaluation or to potentially follow them over time. Now, I do want to reiterate, though, that this was this question was for asymptomatic patients without a syrinx, um, as, as syrinx does complicate that, that decision-making. The next question is something that I think both um, uh, family practice doctor, all types of doctors, as well as neurosurgeons will get, and that is in an asymptomatic patient with a Chiari without a syrinx, should the patient have activity restrictions? So should they not be allowed to participate in contact sports um, or have other activities. Um, and uh, the literature overall did not support restricting asymptomatic patients. And again, I think we have to make the distinction that we're talking about patients without symptoms here. Um, there are a couple of case series that, that followed patients over time um, and did not have any patients who were felt to have symptoms later from their Chiari from sports participation. Um, and so the recommendation was that um, there's no evidence of future harm uh, prevention. Um, the next question was about obtaining routine sleep or swallow studies in patients um, with Chiari to evaluate for sleep apnea or dysphagia. Um, and this was a question where, you know, oftentimes, these are maybe signs or, 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 or brainstem symptoms related to Chiari, and sometimes can be reasons why we may consider surgery in patients who don't have some of the other classic symptoms. Um, looking at it, there weren't really any papers on swallow studies, so um, that wasn't particularly helpful. And then sleep studies, there, there was some evidence that patients who had bad Chiari's and had sleep disordered breathing may get better, but there wasn't any evidence to suggest that routine studies were helpful for the overall patient population. So our recommendation was that it was insufficient evidence to uh, support routine use of these studies. And then finally, another question that, that I will get um, in clinic relates to in a patient with a Chiari 1 malformation, should siblings or first-degree relatives be screened for Chiari 1 malformation? Um, and, and overall, reviewing the literature, it does appear that there is a familial slash hereditary component to Chiari malformation in that um, there was one genetic study that, that looked at patients and then um, checked parents and they found Chiari's in asymptomatic um, family members. Um, that being said, there were a lot of family members who didn't. And if we go back to our question about should we treat asymptomatic Chiari, if the family member is asymptomatic, then we're not going to treat it. And so I think the, the overall, the recommendation is clinicians should not routinely screen asymptomatic siblings or first-degree relatives. But in the discussion, we do talk about that if, if there is a family member who does have symptoms, 
then maybe that is something that you think about when deciding whether whether or not to to consider screening them. Great. Well, um, that was a great uh, summary as well. And you know, it, and it and it brings up a lot of really good questions that that come up day to day. I think in a lot of people's practice. One of one of the things um, that that jumps out at me to, just to kind of maybe level set my knowledge at the moment is, you know, what what percent of uh, Chiari malformations are are actually clinically uh, apparent, get diagnosed. So, I mean, are, you know, what percent of people out there have Chiari's? And we just we just don't know about. It. What's the incidence? I guess. I mean, I think um, you know those numbers are a little bit all over the place, and I think um, especially. Um, I think we're seeing the diagnosis a lot more now that many more MRIs are being done. I think in the CT era, we'll we'll still have patients who get CTs who have bad Chiari's that is not are not read on those studies and not recognized, especially if there's no sagittal reconstructions. I think the uh, a paper I read for which wasn't part of this process was it was about a third of patients probably are symptomatic um, of patients with with Chiari, but that's um, that's not based on this review, and I think is not necessarily a recent paper. Yeah, and, and the um, like the the overall prevalence, um, I've seen uh, numbers varying from one in two hundred to one in five hundred people, and so, um, gosh, I, you know, we could crunch the numbers, but if uh, um, I think you'd almost have an epidemic of Chiari if you had a, a third of those patients, you know, um, uh, symptomatic. So it's, I, I think it's hard to really, um, wrap your head around it. And it's hard to, to, uh, to get a good, um, idea of, um, what the actual incidence and in, in prevalence is. I think, um, I have to say that we were uh, very fortunate to have a, um, patient, uh, advocacy group, um, uh, work with us on, on this. And we really try to be thoughtful about the, the questions. It was the, uh, the Bobby Jones, uh, the Chiari and Syringomalia Foundation. Mm, okay. um, and so they were able to give us, um, uh, and, 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 and sort of tweak our, our questions. And so they were patient centered. I think the, um, uh, the hard part is, um, we tried to answer these questions with the literature and we just didn't have good, good data to, to do that. No, they're, they're, like I said, they're very good questions. They're, I mean, they're questions that I've asked myself while seeing patients. What, when you, when you think about Chiara, you think, you know, uh, you know, some patients, the tonsils are, you know, six millimeters, some patients it's 10 millimeters. Some patients, did, did the literature stratify that in any way? When you looked at, um, when you looked at this, where, you know, with, with uh, increasing t tonsil herniation, did, did, did the tendency trend towards needs closer follow-up or will like more likely to become symptomatic? Were there any differences you noted based on that? So the only, I think in all of the papers, the main literature that really talked about that was actually the sleep disorder breathing uh, studies that, that at least in the, the group for, for chapter two. Um, and that was that I think it was one of the papers talked about two centimeters and the patients who really had significant uh, tonsillar ectopia were much more likely to have sleep disorder breathing, which makes sense because the further it goes, the tighter, the tighter things are going to be as the canal narrows as you're getting into to C1 and C2. I think the, um, for instance, the activity restriction papers 
looked at their groups and the symptomatic, asymptomatic, and didn't really have that much difference in terms of their average tonsillar descent. And I think most of the literature, um, there's not necessarily huge differences if you take all comers in terms of the average tonsillar descent in terms of who's symptomatic and who's asymptomatic, which I think a lot of us see in our practice. We have the patients that we look at the film and wonder how they're not symptomatic. And then we have other patients whose imaging doesn't look that bad who are grossly symptomatic. And how do you how do you try to put those things together and match them? And, and I think in my practice, you kind of use a, a sliding scale of you know, how bad the imaging, how classic are the symptoms that you need versus the imaging isn't as bad. Those symptoms better be spot on classic to kind of think about um, treatment. At least that's the way I, I think about it in my practice. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I agree. I, I agree with that. When when you think about a patient, um, you know, somebody's in the ERs, had a trauma, something like that, and CAT scan gets read as possible borderline Chiari. What what or let's say there is there is you know some some other clinical it doesn't have to be a trauma just some clinical scenario where you have a where it's get, gets read as a borderline. What does your work indicate a need or a way to stratify those patients into a need for follow up or for further workup? Do you automatically do an MRI every time you see that read and and or or, or do you just if it judge based on symptoms? Well, I, th I think um, for me uh, personally, uh, if it's a CAT scan, I'll usually get an MRI just to, you know, confirm uh, the uh, the finding It's possible that, um, you know, with the change in the gantry angle or, or something that it's, it's uh, um, not uh, something that you'd necessarily need to worry about. There, is, there are, you know, other things we didn't look at uh, like Chiari Zero, um, and so really, um, it, it all depends on the symptoms someone's having. And so all the time I'll get patients in clinic who had a concussion and a CAT scan and never had a headache in their life and they have a Chiari. And so um, I, I think um, uh, just being thoughtful about uh, taking care of people, taking care of the patient, not, not the scan, you know, the MRI. And then um, in my mind, uh, for all the kids and the athletes they take care of, the ability to play sports and, uh, um, you know, uh, do daily things in life. Um, uh, you know, parents will ask, um, will this affect my child long-term? I mean, those are the, the, the major issues right. that, uh, that people care about. And, uh, thankfully, uh, Chiari is pretty benign for most people. Um, and, uh, um, the treatment, uh, is, uh, um, uh, was discussed in the third chapter. And uh, so we, we tried to go into some of the nuances about uh, duroplasty, no duroplasty. And again, not not great evidence, um, but uh, but I think it it can give you a flavor for um, the issues that uh, that we think about when when actually treating Chiari. Yeah, I think I would add that question directly was was not addressed. And I think a lot of the times they they get sent out from the ER and are sent to our clinics without us um, being being involved in that. And I think in those cases, I'll often talk to them, um, determine their symptoms and, and look at the imaging to kind of figure out, do we think that's something that, that needs further evaluation or not? Um, I would just say as a, as a public service announcement, David mentioned Chiari Zero. Um, 
the, you know, we have patients who come in and think Chiari zero means you have symptoms of Chiari and, and no Chiari, uh, when in fact it's a described entity from Benny Iskandar and Jerry Oaks. It's when you have a syrinx, but no evidence of Chiari, and it's from an arachnoid web. So in case any people are out there thinking they have Chiari zero because they have strain-induced headaches and no Chiari, that is not Chiari zero. <laughs> I appreciate that clarification. So I, I want to get to kind of an overall, you know, when I when I think when when I think of guidelines and when I think a lot of our listeners think of guidelines, if if you're not familiar with the process, you think, oh, well, I've got a question about a Chiari. When I read this series, I'm gonna know exactly what to do no matter what walks through my door. And in reality, of course, we we know it's not like that. The guidelines for um for the for the first chapter, uh, where we where we look at um, you know diagnostic imaging and should we do this, say things like may or may not predict, may be done, could be helpful. They don't really seem like guidelines. Can you talk to us about uh, that? Yeah, sure. So um, the, the the guidelines are uh, made with a um, a certain methodology, and so um, the methodology allows us to um, make uh, strong statements if we have strong evidence. And unfortunately, um, all of these questions had um, literature um, to um, basically um, support us answering the question. The problem is the literature uh, wasn't strong literature. And so we couldn't make strong statements about um, about anything. Um, and so that that uh, really uh, is why this is a guideline. It's not uh, a uh, you must uh, do it this way. Uh, sometimes you'll have a you know a prospective randomized control trial that uh, changes um, what everyone does. Um, but uh, but this really um, it gives you uh, an idea that the, the literature is not strong, but these are, are, um, are questions that, that people care about. And um, both are reasonable options. And so as a, as a sort of a prudent uh, clinician, um, you might at least consider guidance that we provide in the guideline. That's, that's sort of my, my, my two cents that uh, it's, it's something, uh, these, are, these are questions that um, a, um, a group of experts um, think that um, people care about, that we care about, and uh, th these are things you should probably think about at least um, when taking care of patients with Chiari. I don't know, uh, Dr. Jackson, any any thoughts? Um, I would agree. I think we were fortunate to be able to word our things with less may or may not, um, just based on the nature of the questions, I think. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, when the literature is varied, and in many cases, you may have different papers that say the opposite thing. Um, you really have what we would consider to be equipoise. Um, and in situations of equipoise, I think you do a disservice by coming out with a strongly worded guideline pointing one way or, or the other. And I think the idea is really to give, like you said, the clinician the best evidence available to make the, the best decision. Right. So there is no, so somebody comes in with a brain MRI uh, that diagnoses Chiari 1 malformation. You're not necessarily right or wrong doing neural axis imaging to look for syrinx, to look for tumor, to look for um, others. You're, you're instead encouraged to use your best clinical judgment in, in those situations. The literature doesn't necessarily strongly point one way or the other. 
Am I am I reading you correctly there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But I, but I think uh, the the prudent uh, uh, clinician should at least consider the uh, uh, entire neuraxis uh, imaging if uh, he or she thinks uh, that uh, these could be issues. I, I think that's you know a good a good framework to think about it. Well, we're running a little low on time. Let me ask you each one last question, and that is, what what comes next, and how do we get you know a higher level of evidence and what what should we what should be the next focused area in Chiari malformation um so i mean i, I take that so i think there's there's a number of um multi-institutional groups currently there's the uh park reeves uh um uh, which is based out of wash u which the manuscript i think is getting close to submission for the the PFD versus PFDD study, um, and there's now uh, organized by the Bobby Jones CSF, the CSSS, which is the Chiari surgical um, uh, score, which is the idea of trying to predict different ways for for different patients to who are more likely to to have success with surgery, and then even for instance, like at, at Johns Hopkins, we're trying to also collect data for non-surgical patients to be able to compare to those. And I think just there are so many of these patients uh, who come to us, and and I think it's a group of patients that are very interested in the diagnosis. And, and so I think just trying to capture as much data from all of these patients as they, as they come uh, to be able to answer these questions better in a systematic prospective fashion moving forward. Yeah, and, and I would agree. I think I think that's the uh, the key part. That uh, the reason the evidence is poor quality is that these are sort of retrospective uh, case series. And so, if we have prospective databases where we have certain data points that we uh, care about, we prospectively gather them. We um, have you know a series of patients where where no one's missed. Then uh, we could create um, good high quality evidence. And so. Um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, excited for the future. Hopefully, in in maybe ten years, we'll have some better data. Great, I I uh, really appreciate it. Um, I want to thank you both uh, very much for joining us tonight. Uh, I want to thank you also for the tireless work uh, that goes into bringing these guideline projects to fruition. I think I heard a review of a thousand abstracts, hundreds of papers, and I I know all the hours that go into that. So uh, on behalf of all the other neurosurgeons out there listening, I want to thank you both very much for all that work. For our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone a good night. Thank you. Mm -hmm.